I had some uh, back row tickets that had been uh, procured for me by my high school friend, John Linnell. And it was such a weird concert. It sounded so bad, but you know, I didn't really have any reference. I didn't know how it should sound. So it just was sort of interesting. It was like, oh, I guess these rock concerts in big venues just sound like, uh, yeah, world's largest transistor radio kind of batting around a hall. I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers, and just plain cool people about music. Joining us on The Sound of Success today is John Flansberg of They Might Be Giants, whose latest album book, as well as an accompanying art book by the same name, is out now. Book, if you can believe it or not, is the band's 23rd album, which they add to a laundry list of accomplishments, including a Grammy Award and scoring the TV theme songs for The Daily Show and Malcolm in the Middle. They'll be supporting the album with a live tour next spring, kicking off in March of 2022 in New York City. John, it's good to see you again. Welcome to The Sound of Success. It's great to be on The Sound of Success. Speaking of, of titles, I'm just curious, was it a calculated thing to give your show such an optimistic title? Because <laughs> it really, it's really like you might, you should have just call it like Winner's Circle. You know, that, that might be the, uh, that might be the spinoff when we're looking to, to, to do spinoffs, but yeah, well, look, the whole idea of this is really, you know, talking to people who are doing okay in the world and asking them about music, but tell us you're doing okay. What's going on with They Might Be Giants, another album. I'm doing okay. The album is doing great. The album has been received very, very well. I think in part because there is an art project connected to the album it fulfills the you know every publicist's dream of having like a, a, a bona fide uh, deliverable uh, is the term of art. There's a book that comes with this album, this giant coffee table book. It's 144 pages of like very vivid graphic design and street photography that we collaborated with Paul Sayre, who's like this big deal graphic designer that we've done other projects with, and a great young Brooklyn street photographer named Brian Carlson. And in some ways, it's just like the ultimate, it fulfills the promise of the concert for Bangladesh, wherever it is in your record collection. You know, it's just like this giant hulking thing <laughs> that corresponds to the album that we made. What was the idea behind working with these artists? You know, we've made a lot of albums and we've done some various creative things that ended up feeling more ephemeral. Like when we did our first children's project, we actually did this enhanced CD thing that was kind of like a CD-ROM. And then, of course, like four years later, like whatever computer program it was based on just sort of floated away. CD-ROMs, yeah. CD-ROMs. I mean, you know. <laughs> I didn't really, I never really bought into the idea of CD-ROMs, but, you know, I sort of felt like that was the only thing I really got right. was like, I was like, let's not waste a lot of time on CD-ROMs. Uh, <laughs> well done. Because we've embraced a lot of emerging technology over the years. And a lot of times it's fun to participate in that kind of stuff. But the CD-ROM stuff, everything took too long. So it was just like, nah. But what's great about doing a book is like books are forever. You know, books are a great thing in the real world and they're beautiful. I mean, this is kind of an abstract topic, but when you're in a rock band, you're not, you know, you do a lot of things that are interesting and a lot of things that are sort of powerful, but to do something that's actually aesthetically beautiful, is not like, that's not really our bread and butter stuff. I mean, I guess, you know, Adele lives in a world of aesthetic beauty, but, but we, we don't in general. So it's interesting, like how the challenge of doing an art book that actually 
isn't just for shock value was really interesting. And I think, I think it holds up. We're recording this on December 20th as another wave of COVID is crashing down on the East coast. Are you healthy? Is everybody good in your world? What, I mean, what's it I'm, like right I'm, now? I'm, I'm healthy. Uh, it's a complicated topic. I mean, uh, just in the last couple of days, a couple of dear friends of mine have gotten, have come down with, you know, what appears to be this new kind of COVID and it's, it's kind of a freak out in part because the two, the two people I'm talking about are, are also the most are among the most conscientious. Actually, I would say that they are uh, in the couples that I would say are the most conscientious that I know. Um, and the fact that they've come down with it just means to me, like this, this Omicron variant is just can get to anybody because they are, they're just super vigilant people. It really does seem like we're sort of, you know, at the beginning of something else right now and everybody's a little nervous because we really don't know as we sort of wrap a second calendar year of this thing. And I know you already had to post one tour uh, during the pandemic. Are you worried about maybe having to do the same again in spring? I, I, it seems really 50-50 to me. If we're on the other side of this, maybe it'll happen, but it seems very possible that the one thing that's not going to be allowed is large group gatherings where if there's break, all these breakthrough cases happening, I don't know what, I honestly, I don't know what will happen if we have to, we have 40 sold out shows. I mean, we basically, for most of, for most of the United States, we have booked big shows that we posted mm -hmm. a couple of times now. And if they were actually canceled rather than postponed, I don't know if we'd really be able to come back. I've only canceled a half dozen shows in my entire life. I mean, I can mm -hmm. tell you the thing that booking agents always say is that the effect of canceling a show is, is pretty toxic to your draw. You don't sell out 2000 seats, cancel the show and come back to 2000 people. You, you can't, nobody wants to have that experience again. You cancel a show to 2000 people and you come back and there's 300 people, you know, it's, it's yeah. a withering thing. So I'm, I'm very frightened of our, we're in a very precarious situation. And, and I, I have to say, I, I take it very seriously. You, you talk about, you've been doing this uh, a while now, and obviously the band, which consists of you and John, the other John, John Linnell. 39 years. I was going to say, it's almost 40 years. I mean, it's an amazing feat to uh, keep any relationship that long. Do you feel like there's a secret to staying together as a band and continuing to collaborate after all of these years? John Linnell was very lucky to find me. <laughs> um, no, I think, you know, the truth is, is like, you know, like we had the added advantage of, and, and sometimes this is probably a disadvantage to relationships. We actually knew each other very well before we started the band. And we had, we had shared a lot of experiences as teenagers. And I think, can I swear on this show? If you would like to, yes, absolutely. I think, I think our, our, like our kind of cultural bullshit detectors were kind of tuned simultaneously. And that's a huge advantage in terms of like fielding all the different challenges of being in a band, like what your goals are and how you want to be perceived, what's worthwhile, what's rewarding. You know, we're very different people in certain ways in terms of temperament, but I think the fact that we have the same, that we have all these shared kind of ambitions, uh, some of them are pretty abstract, made it much easier to carry on. And obviously we've experienced all the highs and lows you can imagine in a career and it's never really derailed us. And I think one of the strengths is that because we have the same, we have parallel value systems, I think this was, has been really useful. Well, that's really helpful. Yeah. You said in a recent interview with Forbes, I think that 
<laughs> yes, I think we showed up on the worst paid hundred recording artists. <laughs> you, you, you talked about writing a, a lot of apocalyptic material um, on a pretty consistent basis, I think is, is, is the question. So, right. uh, so what are you writing about now? You know, it's funny. It's kind of, I think of what we're doing is, as I think we started this band as adults. So I kind of think a lot of our concerns have been subtler and, and kind of narrower than a lot of the adolescent angst that's poured into a lot of rock music. But now that we're living through a global pandemic, it does seem like a lot of our go-to apocalyptic imagery seems a little, a little pat. We talked about the new album, obviously, and I want to hear a little bit uh, of this. Well, we want to, I've heard it because I play it on the, on the radio. Right on. Uh, we're we're going to share a little bit with the audience of the podcast right now. The track off book that we're going to listen to is Moonbeam Rays. And we'll come back and talk about some other music. Fantastic. By the time you hear this, it will be too late. By the time.
All right, so that's just a little bit of a taste of what you can expect from the new album from They Might Be Giants. And one of the They Might Be Giants joins us right now. One of the Johns, John Flansberg. And we're going to talk a little bit about music. We've discussed the state of the world and how horrible it is. Um, so why don't we try and lighten things up a little bit? I'm going to ask you about your first musical memory. And by that, I mean the first time that music got in and uh, you, you noticed it. You know, I, I should uh, have like a trigger warning that that this next portion of the program will be coma inducing for anyone <laughs> who is afraid of sort of okay boomer tendencies because I am old. And so when you ask about like all your first experiences in music, the references are are impossibly old. My early experiences with music were incredibly vivid. I grew up in sort of in the shadow of Cambridge, Massachusetts. My dad was an architect. He had a very young firm of his own in Harvard Square near like Club 47. And so all these folkies were the, the whole, I was born in 1960, everything about sort of folky Cambridge and it was running parallel to the, everything that was happening in the West Village in New York at the same time. And his office was just like a, a couple bucks from uh, Club 47, which was the big folk place in, in Cambridge. But my strongest memories as a kid were as a very young Beatle maniac. I, if, it, we, if I was driving in the car with my mom and a song came on the radio that was interesting to me, if a Peter and Gordon song came on, I'd just be like, is this the Beatles? Is this the Beatles? <laughs> and my mom would be like, I, I don't know. I don't know, John. It, it might be the Beatles. I'm like, I, I just need to know if this is the Beatles. Because I was just monomaniacally obsessed with the whole idea of the Beatles as like sort of a gang of boys, I think. And just Beatlemania as a thing. Did, did you stay a Beatles fan? Are you still a Beatles fan? Have you had an opportunity to look at the, the new documentary? I have. I'm a huge Beatles fan. And I, I really respect so many different levels of, of the Beatles. It's interesting. The, the get back thing was, was a little bit tough for me in, in, in part because it seemed more like fan service than a vehicle to persuade people to understand the band at a more definitive level. I, I, I think, you know, they obviously did a lot of technical things that were kind of amazing. You know, Let It Be as a movie is, seems to be about the worst looking film ever made. It's pretty depressing. Yeah. And so I think, you know, Peter Jackson did a really good job of just on the technical side of things. But I think it's it, it was so long. I mean, I, I have this problem with podcasts like crime show podcasts and documentaries that are on streamers now it seems like anything that's a half good idea there it's like why not why not do 12 episodes yeah mm -hmm. well maybe some maybe it shouldn't be that long and i think that the thing that makes me a little sad about the get back movie is that i feel like the beatles are so persuasive as for what they do you, you know putting it in that very, very long kind of endless form is not going to get them any new fans. I think it just turns into this thing that's just, it's just not definitive enough. I mean, the first episode to me was, was just seemed like pure torture. It was like two hours. I mean, two you hours for the band. <laughs> it was a shared experience between us and the band. They were being tortured. We were being tortured. We all got through it together. I felt like if, if they'd started on this, on the third hour, we all would have been better off because I'm going to check in with uh, Elizabeth, who produces this a little later on, because I know she started it. And after we've spoken, we'll see if she finished it. Let's let's right. talk a little bit about live music. We've been talking about concerts and whether or not they're going to happen in the next six months or so. But what was the first concert 
that you went to with, without parents? Um, without parents at the music hall in Boston on some day in April, 1975, I think, or no, no, not in April. It was, it was uh, like November 4th, 1975. I saw Frank Zappa and Captain Beefheart on the Zoot Allures tour. Wow. And, uh, yeah, we, I had some, uh, back row tickets that were, had been, uh, procured for me by my high school friend, John Linnell. And it was such a weird concert. It sounded so bad. But, you know, I didn't really have any reference. I didn't know how it should sound. So it just was sort of interesting. It was like, oh, I guess these rock concerts in big venues just sound like, uh, yeah, world's largest transistor radio kind of batting around a hall. I, I wouldn't say it was a bad show in terms of the musicality. You know, Ruth Underwood was in the band, the Vibest, and there was some very interesting instrumental stuff. I mean, maybe this is just what people say about Frank Zappa, just like the, the musicality was really high. But even then, I, I there was something kind of menacing about the level of, uh, it wasn't just like sexist. It wasn't, it wasn't just like body jokes or dirty, you know, being dirty. It was like, there was this kind of predation that just ran through the music. It just, it just seemed really like horny in this kind of frightening way. And, and, you know, as just like a, you know, I was, I was, a, it was more than I could take, I think, as a kid. A little different from the Beatles, that's for sure. Which is not to say that like, you know, three years later, I wasn't fully into the Sex Pistols. And I was just listening to some music by the Stranglers the other day and just thinking like, this is, this is like, uh, oh, I like the Stranglers. But it's, but there's something so wrong about the Stranglers. They know who they are, which is interesting, but they, they don't seem like nice people. <laughs> I've never met them, so I'm not going to judge that one. Peaches speaks for itself. Well, Peaches, yes. Go go take a listen, boys and girls. Talk about sexist. But yeah, um, do you dance? And if you do, I hope you do. What, what do you listen to when you dance? I dance when I'm very drunk. I'm like kind of a New Year's Eve dancer. Got it. But uh, I, I explore a lot of things on Spotify. And so I wouldn't have like a set thing. I mean, like... Like one thing by Amory would be like a kind of song that I would really enjoy. I really liked all the kind of Missy Elliott era hip hop. That kind of stuff is speak really speaks to me just because the Sonics are so cool. Mm. Um, you know, Timbaland. Just uh, I like Hot ninety seven. Hot ninety seven. That's a radio station in New York. Yeah, right? yeah it's yeah. the big. It's the big yeah. mainstream radio station in New York that plays yeah. six songs in a row, and then they start playing the first one again. It's like a very right. And, very and in, between, in between that, they're selling you mattresses and beer. Yeah, like when uh, Alicia Keys' New York song came out, I f and with the Jay Z kind of guest spot in it, I feel like they would play New York by Alicia Keys go to commercial, come back and play New York again. <laughs> Probably did. Yeah. Uh, what about if you feel sad? Now, this is an interesting question because we've been doing this a little while now and we find that some people say, yeah, I'm going to dive into it, you know, put on something melancholy or I'm going to put something on that's going to get me out of that feeling. Do you have a, a, a song or an artist that you listen to when you're feeling perhaps a little down? Well, I don't look to music to solve that kind of emotional problem. I think I'm just as likely to, to try to write if I'm really feeling sad. If I'm not feeling inspired musically, which is kind of runs parallel to that idea, I think I end up listening to singer songwriters more. 
just because they're just naturally more introspective. And, and quite specifically, I often, if I'm feeling like I have nothing left in the well, uh, musically, I'll listen to kind of psychedelic era, Bob Dylan, like blonde on blonde. And I'm not sure why I didn't listen to Dylan very deeply as a kid, mm. but I just find it, uh, it's so free. I feel like that amphetamine fueled Bob Dylan. It's so exciting. It's just so volatile and crazy. And he's just on such a weird trip. And I love how fearless he is as a writer. Do you have a favorite music video? And if so, why? You know, I actually directed music videos professionally in the mid, in the early nineties. And a lot of our career kind of was on the back of these great videos that Adam Bernstein directed for us. So I feel like I should have a much better answer than this. <laughs> well, um, do you have a favorite one that you directed or a favorite well, one me, that you were directed me, in? Let me guess what everybody else you ever interview who you ask this question for. I know what, I know what their answer is. Their answer is some video by Spike Jones, right? <laughs> Am I wrong? I don't think so. No, I think, um, I think you might be, I think you might be wrong on that. Yeah. We've been getting answers like, uh, thriller, obviously the Michael Jackson thing. Um, oh, wow. That's the Duran, Duran videos from, from the early eighties, you know, like Rio and stuff like that. But are, are these like, these are like dot com billionaires that you're asking the question to, or pretty much, uh, you're, you're the first, you're the first person we've spoken to who's not a dot-com billionaire. Yeah. So I, I well, guess like you, you read about me in Forbes. <laughs> um, well, I mean, that's interesting. I once, we once got a video treatment from somebody really interesting who wanted to do a shot by shot remake of the Duran Duran Rio video with us as the star. You're doing it. I hope. <laughs> it was such an interesting off the wall idea. It was like, you know, we got, we got a good sense of humor, but there are limits. Um, no, I'd pay to see that, but you know, this is just getting back to the Beatles for me, kind of the best rock videos of all time were the hard days night musical segments. Like they were just the speaking of things that are just very carefree. And I think in a lot of ways, the videos that John and I made with Adam were kind of bouncing off that kind of 60s TV commercial, like Coke commercials from the 60s and Hard Day's Night and all that, of the kind of hard black and white, hard cut kind of pop imagery of those things, just those aesthetics, like those visual non sequiturs. That to me seemed like the best use of rock videos before Spike Jones came along. And then Spike Jones kind of brought like a film school aesthetic that was just couldn't be topped. You know, when I, when I think of those old, old black and white videos that you're talking about, which is we've sort of, uh, hinted at were, were made before the actual advent of music television. It's interesting to see other people copying that these days, the vintage look, I guess it's, it sort of never seems to go away. Does it? It's so pop, it's very much like it fits a world that's been fully influenced by Andy Warhol and, and it's, it's just a clear manifestation of like a pop aesthetic and it's just always seems crisp. Do you have a recent musical discovery? It doesn't have to be a new band or a new artist. It can be somebody that you've just discovered and they might've been around a long time, but do you have a recent discovery that you would like to share with our listeners? 
Uh, absolutely. I mean, Mr. Harcourt, I know you have a long tradition in the Catskill Mountains and yes. radio uh, at the very, well, not at the very beginning of the, the shutdown, but like right in April of last year, I actually called up our local community radio station right here in Sullivan County, where I'm, I'm hiding from the world mm-hmm. and, and asked if I could do a radio show just because I figured I'm going to be here for a little while. And they were like, sure, we'll pay you nothing to DJ an hour a week. And I was like, that sounds fantastic. So I've basically spent the last like year and a half listening to all sorts of new music and old music. And it's been a fantastic way to get my mind off the pandemic and kind of deeper into music. And there's a whole host of things that I've gotten into since um, I've started DJing a show. I mean, first of all, when the Shays Lounge song came out by hot leg i just was like this wet is leg. the greatest band in the wet world leg. there's a freudian slip there oh 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 wet leg wet leg yes they've got a fantastic video one of the few videos of recent times that i thought was interesting i but i just i just love wet leg i love their i wonder what's going to happen with them i mean maybe they'll just have this very bright shining moment and be a one-hit wonder but they could be iggy pop and bjork at the same time as far as i can tell you know it's like i just Love their sensibility. It's so, so wild. I really like Tierra Whack. I don't know if you, if she's on your radar at all. She's no. in the hip hop world. She made this record called Whack World about five okay. years ago. That was all 60 second songs. It's very, very strange. She's, she's from Philly. She's kind of a hip hop artist, but she doesn't really rap as much as she sings. So I, she's, kind of falls outside the mainstream a little bit. I'm really into uh, Big Thief. Yes, uh, like that new record, yeah. I, maybe you can explain this to me. I, I kind of discovered Mitski entirely through Spotify. There was no there was no cultural reference to Mitski for me. It seems like she's uh, gotten a lot of exposure opening for other people and is having a more kind of mainstream career than I would have ever imagined. The only, the second thing, I, I just heard this song called Me and My Husband, which was such an enigmatic song to me because it's like the message of the song is so unlikely. Like, is this, what's, what's she driving at? Because the song is about her and her husband are going to get through this together. So there's just mm. a very unlikely sentiment in the song. And now it turns out she's like wildly popular. She's playing at Radio City Music Hall. And she's only been making albums for a couple of years. And I just was wondering how she has made such an impact so quickly. Her songs are not particularly upbeat. They're not transgressive in any way. What, like, what's the secret sauce in her? How, how was, how was she anointed? Do, do you mean? Cause that's well, usually. I mean, well, one of her albums, one of her albums is called second puberty, which I think has got to be like, it's like a repellent title for an album. You know, it's like, it's like calling your album get away, you know, it's so, so she put out her first album in, in 2012 and she, she's put out a couple since then. And, and the, the new one is actually her six. So I guess she's been bubbling for, for a little, little while. Right. 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 I, I mean, I just, she's really, she's great. Um, Lucy Dacus is really interesting. Ooh, I, don't yeah, know. I like her. Did she, there's a song on her new album called thumbs that is, uh, really a, a harrowing, crazy, interesting song. And, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff out there right now. I think just speaking as an old, I can say that if, if you just assume that there's nothing out there worth listening to, you, you'd be surprised at how much would actually capture your imagination, even if you are kind of a song-based listener. I mean, I like songs. I like 
melodies and verses and choruses and songs with a beginning, a middle, and a stop. Me too. Yeah. Bridges, you know, and, and I mean, it, it, it is kind of an old fashioned idea. It's a very 20th century idea. So, so let me, let me ask you this, um, because I've been thinking about this for quite some time, at least a couple of years now, when did it become okay to release a song that's just verses with no bridge, maybe a chorus, but not really, because it seems to me that we're, there's a lot of stuff out there right now and it starts, you go, oh, this is pretty cool. And then like, right, it right, just right, right. keeps going exactly the same for two minutes and then they're out. Well, I think it's really, it's hip hop, right? I mean, it's, it's basically <laughs> influence of hip hop and working with looping devices rather than a band. I remember, you know, years ago, I did a couple of collaborations with Mike Doty, the fellow from Soul Coughing. And it was an interesting sort of challenge because he, he was like, you put together the track, I'll, I'll do the vocal and I'll just do like, you do the bass and I'll do the top. So and it was, was like, he okay. was an early top liner. Yeah. So it was like, okay, I totally get that as an assignment. Cause I'd done stuff for TV. I'd done, you know, jingle work. I'd done all sorts of other kinds of collaborations, like work for hire stuff where you have a very clear, um, like what you, the part you have to fulfill is very delineated. So it's like, I sort of took that as my challenge, but the one thing he said was, I just wanted to be one riff. And I was like, wow. Okay. Just one riff, like no build, no, <laughs> no down part, you know, just like, riff. It was just like one riff. And, and so it's like immediately the challenge is like, write a really great riff. <laughs> because right? that's that, all you've got, right? If that's yeah, how you're that, giving That's what you're going to be working with. Better be good. And, and I mean, I, I put together a couple of good tracks that I think fit the bill, but it was a real challenge. But his aesthetic is very modern. And I think he is coming from essentially a, a hip hop based setup. And that kind of monolithic groove idea runs through a lot of hip hop and it's just a different way of kind of coming at the track. We've got a couple of questions left, but before we uh, get into these last two, I just want to follow up on you doing a, a radio show. Are you still doing the radio show? And if so, where? I am doing a radio show. It's on WJFF, uh, uh, in Jeffersonville, New York for years. It actually is a, a hydro powered radio station. It's hard. It's, they've got it. It's, and they have had the moniker, the best little station by a jam site for a long time. Nice. It's a sweet station and some very cool people work there. It's just like your classic community radio at, at its coolest. And I'm uh, guessing it's WJFF.org. WJFFradio.org because oh, okay. somebody else got Somebody got, else already got that. That's some guy named WJFF got it. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Do you have an, an artist or, or a band that you like, love, but feel they never quite got the big break they deserved? Well, you know, we've been touring for 30 years and it's a fascinating place to be because for most of those years, we've had opening acts coming through just constantly. And um, some of them vaulted to the top of the pop charts. I mean, I'll tell you, this is such an odd story. When our second album broke out, it broke really big um, in, we had this song, Anna Ang, that was on MTV all the time. And we were in the middle of touring across the United States and we had finally graduated to playing like a weekend night at CBGB, which was like CBGB's had this very regimented way in the eighties of making every band, local bands start on Sundays or Monday audition nights. And you kind of worked your way through the count through the week. And so this was our big breakthrough. And we we're like very much looking forward to actually headlining a show at CBGB's. 
And right as we were arriving back in New York, Hilly was like, John, I got some tough news for you. Uh, this is this band, Hilly Crystal, the owner of CPTV, is yeah. quite a character. And he's like, we got this this band coming in from uh, Australia and they, they, they need a showcase. And I was like, a showcase on a Friday night in front of our sold out crowd? Like, Hilly, you're killing me. He's like, well, we're going to put them on. They're going to play for half hour. And it's the guys from... <laughs> It's the guys from Split Ends. Oh, and I was like, Split Ends. And, and the, I mean, I knew Split Ends. They had one kind of breakout hit in the mid 70s. And they were the first band that ever really looked like new wave punk rockers, which was new wave from New Zealand. None, they none were from that. New Zealand, actually. Yeah. And, uh, but they were very, very specific looking. Like they had, oh, they looked the part. Yeah. But, in, but ahead of everybody. I mean, they were really ahead of their time in a certain way. And I was like, oh, wow, Split Ends is still around? That's so weird. And so then we get to the gig, and there's, there's the guy, the Crowded House. Like, they're, you know, they're, they, it is the first incarnation of Crowded House. They're wearing the jackets that they're wearing on the cover of their album, their first album with, with the painted stuff, applique kind of stuff. And they've ju clearly just gotten off a plane from New Zealand. They look like they've been dragged from the back of a pickup truck for about a half mile. Like they're so tired looking. I was like, wow, I feel so sorry for those guys in split. <laughs> this really stinks. And then they get in a front long of, trip as well. Yeah, yeah. They get in front of our crowd. You know, they, I don't know. I don't know how, I actually don't know how that, how well the show went. I think they, I'm sure they comported themselves. The guy, the, the front guy in split end in, in crowded house is like one of the best live singers. Like he sounds Nathan. Yeah. Neil Finn is an incredibly talented singer. So I'm sure he did fine. I'm sure he did great. He probably won over our crowd. I have, I have no measure of that. But I do remember thinking, wow, you're in this business for like 20, 10 years or 15 years. And all you have to look forward to is like doing a crappy show at opening for some local band and CBGBs. Yeah. And then, then six months later, like they had the number one song in the world. And obviously everything worked out fine for them, but just from up close, it just seemed like hell to me. I just seemed like <laughs> their lives must've just really stunk, but they just stunk for a little while. And then they yeah, were well, getting off an airplane after 20 hours anywhere is uh, you're, yeah. you're not very good for, for a day or two. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just a long way of saying like, you just never know success and failure are kind of two sides of the same coin. If you're a live performer, I, th I think you just kind of see everything coming and going. I've seen a lot of bands that I, there was a band that opened for us a bunch years ago called Moon Hooch that was um, just a, one of the most exciting live acts, like just the most visceral, fantastic band, but they're also an instrumental band. It's two saxophones and a drummer and playing with loops. I mean, like, what's that? I don't know if there's a place on the radio for that, but as a, just a live musical thing to witness, Moon Hooch were amazing. There's a band from Vancouver called Cub that we did a cover of one of their songs, New York City, that was just like a delightful all-girl band. There are a ton of great acts out there. You just never know who's going to be big, you know. Sometimes. You mentioned Spotify a little bit earlier on. Um, is that a place that you have used to source new music as well for your, for your radio show? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do a lot of kind of like research with Spotify. I yeah, don't, yeah. I don't find it particularly productive. It seems very vast, but I, but a lot of the aesthetic choices, I feel like every playlist I listen to just leads back to the Velvet Underground for me. Uh, but 
of my wife was talking to her friend and was t- saying, explaining that, that that was my complaint with Spotify. And she was like, I, I feel the same way, but I, I love the Velvet Underground and, and all my playlists lead me to Jonathan Richmond. And she's like, who's this Jonathan Richmond? I hate Jonathan Richmond. <laughs> the thing that I like about it is that I can find pretty much not everything, but a lot, a lot of stuff. I, I use it as a resource and a, a discovery place rather than listening to, to music there. Um, two more questions. Do you have a, an artist or a band who is a guilty pleasure? Well, I mean, I, I sort of feel like I'm, I'm like too old to feel guilty about any pleasure at this point. <laughs> Desperately looking for it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, speaking of Spotify, like I, I've, I do a lot of kind of listening to like marginal Northern soul recordings is one of the things that I do on Spotify. And that is like, it's weird when you've listened to so much soul music that you're, you're just tired of all the really good soul music that you're just willing to listen to kind of second string soul music just to get a fix, another fix of soul music. It's, it's kind of odd. Um, I also, I listen to, I mean, this would definitely qualify as a guilty pleasure because people make fun of it so much. I listen to Lambert Hendricks and Ross, which is this kind of vocally vocalese jazz or like King Pleasure and Annie Ross. Maybe this. Oh, right. Song. Yes, yes, yes. My wife is a huge Annie Ross fan. And so we've Scottish, been, wasn't yeah. she? Yeah. Uh, yeah, she is. I believe so. And she, but she came to the United States. She's an actress, very kind of hard scrabble life. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a jazzer, you know. Fabulous voice. Yeah. And she did these, she, Lambert Hendricks and Ross is like, Lambert is this vocal arranger and he did a lot of very cool stuff in the fifties, but it's like, so kind of squeebop, you know, it's, it's very, it's, it's, it's it to a lot of people. It just sounds like a Saturday Night Live skit. I think. Listen, it is, uh, December 20th. 2021 as we're talking right now and i don't know when you're going to be hearing this dear listener but this is the day that we recorded it on and on this day everything is up in the air again we're working our way towards christmas we're all a little um anxiety ridden with the omicron variant by by now if you're listening to this in two years we probably had another 10 but in this moment that we're speaking as we're wrapping this up um Thank you for talking to me for uh, uh, a good chunk of time it's been a pleasure hanging out with you how are you feeling right now i'm feeling good i'm you know thank you so much for having me on your podcast it's it's uh i do a lot of print interviews these days and it's just nice to actually know that i can say something directly and it's and its tone won't be misunderstood oh i didn't tell you we're going to edit all the no no just kidding kidding this will go on exactly as uh, as, as we spoke please add some likes and you knows and some ums uh, we'll Elizabeth, you know, our producer I, will add those in. I feel like I sound like such a surfer when I get that. That's the part that blows my mind. Is it, where did all these likes come from? You speak with no likes, Nick. You speak with no. You don't say any of those things. You never say the word like or you know. My kid does. Does it drive you crazy? My son makes up for all the ones that I don't okay, do. Well, like nice. you know. <laughs> Thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Sound of Success is produced by Elizabeth Thompson with myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and at sparknetwork.com. <laughs>